Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Abby Martin. This is Robbie Martin. Welcome, everybody. Great to see you in person, Robbie. Yeah, it's good to see you. Came we usually up, don't do this uh, actually in person. Yeah, came up for your born day, so happy birthday. Thanks, Abby. Happy birthday, Robbie. Uh, we had a really fun time at Great America up here. <laughs> I wore my Stop the U.S. War Machine shirt at the park. And unfortunately, the only person who came to talk to me about it was a Jehovah's Witness. It was just really weird. It's like it was kind of a sampling size of, I think, the larger population that really were up against a really big wall here of just complete um, either ignorance or just people who totally tuned out about what's going on. You know, like when you say that the U.S. is an empire, people think you're talking about Star Wars and just wearing that shirt in the Bay Area. You would think that more people would like give you a thumbs up or high five or something. And it was just like nothing. It was just zombified stares the entire day. Yeah. And fun fact, the founder of uh, the Jehovah's Witness religion became immediately popular as a prophet. His followers thought he was prophetic because his followers thought that he predicted World War I. And after that is when the religion sort of exploded. So that it's weird that the Jehovah's Witnesses have always had like a fixation around war. And Christian scientists, too. I mean, certain... Certain bizarre Christian religions are good on war. <laughs> Christian Science Monitor is like one of the best. I know. I'm just going to say they used to be, they used to do some really good coverage of like the Iraq war and stuff back in the day. Really interesting. So speaking of war, the U.S. Saudi coalition just bombed another wedding party in Yemen. This happens every couple of weeks. This is uh, just another strike on a wedding party killing 11 women and children with American grade weapons. A wedding should be the happiest day of your life, not make you a target for execution and where's the outrage where's the press mint press news i guess is on the ground in yemen gathering a lot of great content that people should check out but i mean honestly it is just absolutely abysmal what is going on there again three times the amount of people who died in the holocaust are at risk of starving to death by the end of the year and they just continue to bomb civilian targets over and over again this is uh this is on top of the same day, bombing a bunch of like agricultural targets, said four just like residential buildings, farming lands in the Bakim district of Yemen's northwestern province of Sadaa. Ten different airstrikes. And of course, they couldn't even rescue these people who were at the wedding because they're afraid of getting double tap strikes. So they had to wait until the next morning to pull the bodies out of the rubble and see and assess the damage. And, you know, when you post stories like this, it's just really amazing how some people will respond and be like, well, there's a reason why they bombed the wedding party. Who was the target? And it's like, actually, I don't think there is targets at this point. I think they are like intentionally bombing wedding parties and funerals. And, you know, we know that they're intentionally bombing all the civilian infrastructure. And yeah, if you're, did- I mean, you really trust Saudi Arabia's ability to determine guilt and culpability. Yeah. I mean, it's, it just, Look what Trump said during the election. Like, we need to kill kill the terrorists and their families. Like, these people who... I mean, this idea of, like, the rules of war and what's a just war or not. I mean, they don't really exist. So, if you don't have anybody really trying to stop you um, and you're Saudi Arabia bombing Yemen, I mean, yeah. Like, they probably would want to wipe out an entire family of someone that they're like, oh, there's, like, one Houthi rebel or something that... We think went to this wedding, let's just like kill the entire family just to be sure. 
or yeah. something. I mean, or gives a cell phone. It, kind, to it makes sense from strategic, like crazy, cold-blooded, like just, you know, if you're intent on massacring a people, why wouldn't you do that? So I don't yeah. know. April twenty-third, another wedding was attacked, killing fifty civilians, injuring an additional fifty-five. It's just complete and total carnage. So anyway, according to Yemen's Ministry of Human Rights based in Sana'a, you know, almost a million casualties so far from the war. And of course, it's tri- triggered just an epidemic of disease and famine across the country, as we know. So it's just really, really disturbing that more weddings, more funerals, more civilian targets and not a peep, not a peep. It's fucking crazy. You did a whole podcast about the original Skripal attack. Yeah, we did. Yeah, so another incident recently happened, which is being referred to as the Amesbury poisonings. There's already a Wikipedia article up for it. Like, it's like a real thing. And as we sort of know about the the Skripal incident, the Salisbury poisoning incident, that was a very strange incident. And it doesn't really appear that there's any evidence or proof. And even if you just look at all of the sort of anecdotal evidence of how this both Skripal sort of reacted, how they recovered in the hospital. doesn't seem like there's any proof that this supposed Russian-made nerve agent, Novachuk, was actually the culprit for what happened to these people. So another pair of people on June 30th, they were found unconscious at their house in Amesbury, Wilshire, about eight miles from the Salisbury poisoning site. It says on Wikipedia... And then on July 4th, the police announced that the pair were poisoned with the same nerve agent as ex-Russian spy Sergei Skripal. Um, Very, very strange, especially considering that, you know, if it really was a nerve agent that was used, how long would that nerve agent last in the open air this long after the original incident? Because they actually say later that they don't believe that they were specifically targeted. So the UK government and the police that are investigating this do not think, and this is actually a quote from, I think this is also from Wikipedia, but I'm not sure which article this is a quote from. Uh, But the police say it is not believed that the couple were subject to an assassination attempt since the couple were believed to be near the roads that were sealed off during the investigation of the Skripal poisoning in Salisbury. Um, very strange. You know, I don't know enough about chemical weapons or bioweapons to know if this could last long enough to like hurt someone if it was just like on the ground or, you know, on an object or I don't really understand what they're trying to say here. But one of the people actually died on July 8th. One of the pair, Don Sturgis, died as a result of this alleged Novichuk poisoning. And of course, being eight miles away from the Salisbury incident also makes it still in very close proximity to Porton Down, a place that was working with similar nerve agents to Novichuk and is a bioweapons and chemical weapons UK government facility. So because it's near the Salisbury incident actually makes it also near Porton Down, which was a suspicious thing about the Salisbury incident in the first place. Very strange, and it hasn't really gotten the same amount of traction uh, that the original incident got. But this is like coming right off the heels of like Russia doing really well in the World Cup, apparently, 
until like the last few matches or something. I actually might be completely wrong about that. I don't follow this sports bullshit at all, but you know, it just seems really weird because they did such an extensive quarantine all the way to the people's house throughout the entire park. You would assume that they would have really taken precautionary measures to really make sure that no one could, no one else could die from this deadly nerve agent. Mm -hmm. It's just so weird to me how these people picked up the, you know, gotten affected by this and then, and then one of them died. It's strange that it happened again. You know, it'd be like almost like if two polonium incidences happened like right in a row. It's so strange. Yeah, it's very, very strange. I mean, that you want to talk about that Guardian article that just... So, you know, some stuff still gets through in Western media sources that are skeptical of these narratives. And one, there was an opinion piece by a guy named Simon Jenkins in The Guardian on July 5th uh, that said, if the Novichok was planted by Russia, where's the evidence? And basically the tone of the article is extremely skeptical of the motive for wanting to do this. It's not even really going into the evidence as much as just saying, like, show us the evidence. Because there really isn't as much evidence. I mean, there isn't any evidence. And the Guardian article says the most obvious motive is someone out to embarrass Vladimir Putin. And that does seem to be the case. I mean, it just does. Otherwise, there just doesn't seem to be a motive for why Putin or the Russian government would be doing this at all. Even just the original incident, the trying to assassinate Sergei Skripal. I, it just there's just not enough anecdotal evidence even as to why what the motive would be for trying to murder him. Yeah, and that hasn't stopped Theresa May and also Defense Secretary Gavin Williamson in Parliament from saying things like this. The simple reality is that Russia has committed an attack on British soil, which has seen the death of a British citizen. That is something that I think the world will unite with us in actually condemning. I mean, so they're still saying that the, that Russia murdered this woman essentially. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's quite strange. I mean, I would like to see a neutral sort of chemical weapons expert, bioweapons expert chime in on this and just go through all the evidence that's being presented and give it like his honest assessment. It's really frustrating, but luckily it's not getting too much traction over here. That's one of the things I think they were hoping Trump was going to get on board and talk about the Screepall incident and talk about how awful it was. And he didn't say anything about it. I mean, maybe he's smart enough to know that this just seems like a weird, seems weird. I don't know. Maybe I'm giving him too much credit. Or maybe he's a, a, a Manchurian candidate plant, planted by Vladimir Putin. And that's why he's not saying anything about it. I mean, that's what the resistance said. They were like, why isn't he mentioning the Novichuk Skripal thing? Is it because it'll make Putin mad? But there's all this hysteria about Trump getting a peace deal with Putin. It's just hilarious. This is a Times of London. Fears grow over prospect of Trump peace deal with Putin. Really? Well, don't worry, um, because the Democrats basically just sided with Trump again to pass a near trillion dollar defense budget. And guess what? That budget alone is $82 billion more, right? $82 billion. Just that increase alone is actually greater than Russia's entire military budget of $61 billion. Makes sense. Just yeah. the increase in one year. Wow. Crazy. An incredible statistic. Why don't you go into the, this push for a war in Venezuela? I oh, mean, yeah. how there's movements for regime change there. I mean, we've already heard the propaganda. Even Tucker Carlson, supposedly anti-war neocon slayer, has been slyly saying, well, 
someone who actually does need regime change, not Assad, but it's Maduro. Why aren't we doing it there? Yeah, why aren't we doing it there? So this is, again, all oh, the mainstream Oh, and Coulter, media. too. Oh, God. All these corporate media publications just putting out calls for regime change. Again, another day, another media publication saying that we should do an undemocratic coup to oust a democratically elected leader. So this day, it's the Spectator in the UK that wrote, why Trump's proposal to invade Venezuela is worth taking seriously. And this article is juxtaposed next to a giant ad to go visit Israel. It'll give you an insight on who the advertisers are to this website. But yeah, I mean, to that point, Trump is, there's all these reports of basically Trump badgering his like advisors and people around him why he wants to invade Venezuela and propose regime change. So according to The Spectator, According to Colombian officials who spoke to the AP, he was trying to propose the idea to a group of regional leaders at the UN General Assembly last year, and the answer was an unequivocal no. Um, and that they said, you know, any option that implies the use of force, they wouldn't stand behind. So, of course, this was kind of drowned out by all the Russia stuff and, and the immigration stuff, but it just shows you that Trump is continuing to hammer in on the idea of regime change. It's actually, you know, all of this credit given to him, like, oh, he doesn't want to do this. It's, it's, he's actually the one pushing for this. So Trump is continuing to try to push for regime change. Um, it's really, really, really disgusting that he's doing that for obvious reasons. And then it just came out that the day that Maduro got overwhelmingly reelected in the country with like four to five million votes over his, you know, the next contender, it came out that a plot, a regime change plot was in place, codenamed Operation Constitution. Um, Venezuelan opposition military officials were basically planning to stage this violent coup on the day of the May 20th presidential elections to prevent the vote and kidnap Maduro. Kidnap Maduro. It was, it was codenamed Operation Constitution, involved scores of captains, colonels, generals from all four branches of Venezuelan's armed forces. This is according to Popular Resistance, now I'm reading. The goal was straightforward, seismic to capture President Nicolas Maduro, put him on trial. Um, absolutely insane. They were supposed to storm the presidential palace and military base and stop the elections. So the most kind of crucial point of this story is that they arrested these coup plotters before the coup happened, obviously, because I think there was a mole. But here's where it gets really insane is that the planning actually took place in Bogota, uh, you know, Colombia is a, a country that the U.S., I think it's the third largest aid recipient from U.S. military aid. The U.S. has been training there forever. And now it's NATO been, member. Yeah, it's and now NATO member. Exactly. And it's been kind of pondered about for a while. How much role has Colombia played in fomenting the paramilitary death squads that have bled over into Venezuela, controlling large swaths of these barrios that are run by like right right wing crazy paramilitary groups? It's not going to be easy because Maduro and Chavez were very close to the armed forces and you kind of need the military to carry out a successful coup. So it just shows you that this is being planned on the daily from the U.S., Colombia and the opposition in Venezuela, who we've paid $50 million to since 2009, that Trump is constantly meeting with and egging on. So this is still happening. We should not forget about Venezuela. There's a reason why they're doing this and you know, it, it could have happened on the election day. We're really lucky that these people were unsuccessful and were arrested before they were able to carry out another violent insurrection and probably hundreds of people would have died. 
and the U.S. would have fully supported it. And all these assholes here who don't know anything would have been like, well, I guess we needed to do something. Yeah. I mean, are all the supposedly anti-war libertarians even never talk about protecting Venezuela's sovereignty against any of this meddling because they all rag on it for being socialist, even though it's not even really a socialist country. Yeah, it's just really, really predictable too. I mean, even when Elliot Abrams was being floated around as being like a guy to be uh, the Secretary of State, I think, it just seemed like the 80s era neoconservative style policies were coming back. Latin America is going to be a target again, more so than it was during the Obama administration, maybe even more so than it was even during the Bush administration. Yeah, you see a lot of reactionary tendencies on the rise after the so-called pink tide that saw everyone from Korea to Mujica um, to Morales all being elected across Latin America from Chavez's victory was the onset of this huge wave where we saw all these revolutionary figures being elected. And then it kind of went back, right, where we saw Brazil... um, Argentina, a lot of like right-wing takeovers of a lot of these bodies now. But but another really big victory, which kind of throws a wrench in this whole plan to, to recolonize Latin America and put it under the, the thumb of the U.S. empire, is the landslide victory of Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador and Mexico that just happened. So I don't know too, too, too much about him. I'm just going to just give you just really quick highlights about the victory because I think symbolically it is enormous, even though people have told me, oh, he's, you know, he's abandoned a lot of his principles and da da da. It's like, okay, let's just be really excited at the fact that this guy who is a, le- a leftist um, won the presidential election. I mean, this is an incredible feat from a country that essentially had like a one party system forever. So I'm reading from the from the PSL's article right now in the Mexican elections. And mind you, this is an election cycle where 130 politicians were murdered. It's like Jesus one of the most Christ. violent, violent election cycles in the history of Mexico where people were just getting gunned down, executed. I don't know how Obrador even, I mean, he must have had an incredibly like hardcore security detail. So he won the presidency with over 50% of the vote. It was an incredible victory. Um no doubt helped, I think, by just Trump just being such a piece of shit and treating the the entire region with just total callousness and um, bigotry. Mm-hmm. But he ran on an amazing platform. I mean, he ran on on a platform of of helping the poor. So reading from this PSL article, the election was a crushing defeat for the neoliberal institutional revolutionary party, which had governed Mexico for over 71 years. Jesus Christ. 71 years. And it was just moving to the right the entire time, as well as the Conservative National Action Party. So, th- so these two parties were basically reigning this entire time. Clueless, hypocritical liberals like John Oliver are actually calling Lopez Obrador the Mexican Donald Trump because he was fighting these, these entrenched establishment figures that had corrupted Mexico for so long. So yeah, of course, like these idiots who have no concept on like what populism means and how yeah, it could be bad populism rhetoric and good populism rhetoric. Um, but I think it's really clear to the Mexican people that the two candidates running against Obrador were loyal to the violent and corrupt political elite responsible for plunging Mexico into the social and political crisis. It's seen where there's been tens of thousands of deaths, the drug war is completely out of control, and the corruption has just completely taken over all aspects of government. I mean, anyone who's gone to Mexico knows that 
You'll probably end your trip with bribing cops or like paying someone off if you get stopped or caught <laughs> uh-huh. anywhere. Um, but but that's just like the least of it. I mean, the amount of deaths and violence, torture, um, you know, the missing students movement, all of these people who got killed during the election is just absolutely astounding. And so it's really amazing in a country that was ruled by like right wing oligarchs for so long to have this swing in the other direction and be like, okay, these haven't worked. Maybe we should really go to the root, like what Obrador is saying. He's like, we need to go to the root of these crises. We need to provide social services, healthcare, education. He talks about inequality and how we need to really help the poor people. First and foremost, he wants to rule and legislate for poor people in the country. And that could just be completely empty rhetoric. You know, I've heard, I've seen a lot of critiques on him and saying, you know, he's going to just be another like neoliberal Obama type figure. But here's what I think is just really amazing. Can you imagine like Hillary even talking about poor people here? Like no, no one even acknowledges the fact that half of this country is living paycheck to paycheck and yeah. that they're poor. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that someone's even like acknowledging deep levels of poverty, I think is just a really big sea change in just the consciousness so it just compared to our electoral system and the politicians here that just bizarrely just ignore reality. So, yeah, I mean, for decades, Mexico has been been governed by neoliberal centrists and right wingers. And they've been always reliable partners with the U.S. in these free trade disasters, the war on drugs. Nearly half of its population lives in poverty, while the wealthiest 10 percent of the country's population holds over 40 percent of the total income. And even though they've just heavily militarized the drug war as a solution, similarly to how the U.S. has reacted to the war on terror by basically creating more terrorism, the same thing happened there, where this militarized drug war basically has failed to prevent 200,000 murders since 2006. So in Obrador's 2017 book called Oye Trump, Listen Up Trump, he declared, quote, Trump and his advisors speak of the Mexicans the way Hitler and the Nazis referred to the Jews just before undertaking the infamous persecution and the abominable extermination. So, I mean, he's definitely astute. Like, he's saying shit that goes farther than a lot of other people. Um, But I think it's really important to to note also that he also did essentially win the presidential elections in 2006 and 2012 on this same platform, and they basically stole the vote. That's pretty widely acknowledged that, that the right wing, it was such a minute difference that they were able to seize the votes, but this time he won on such a huge mandate that they weren't able to steal the election. That's what people say. You know, I know like a lot of indigenous people are upset. They're saying he's throwing them under the bus. So time will tell what is going to happen. I'm just excited for what could come of this. And, you know, Correa, President Correa of Ecuador, who's now like under an Interpol arrest order from Lenin Moreno, the new president is fucking bizarre. Weird. But the last interview that I did with him before he was leaving office, I asked him, you know, what did he think would happen if Trump won? And he said, Trump would be good for the region because then we would see a similar kind of like pink tide, Mm -hmm. like during Bush. And, you know, he kind of predicted this and hopefully we'll see another resurgence of these kind of leftist leaders across Latin America because of how terrible Trump is. And I don't want to say like, it's because of the U S that obviously Mexicans are choosing this. Obviously that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, he also campaigned on like, you know, he wrote a book called Oye Trump. Like obviously his rhetoric against Trump has helped yeah. his popularity. So it, it, sure. it all, it all plays together, but. And I already saw a lot of the smears coming out about mm-hmm. him. You know, even though he was a leftist, they were trying to compare him to Trump because 
the horseshoe theory, you know, it's like the alt right and the alt left, you know, are the same or whatever. I it mean, doesn't even make same. sense. What do you mean? Like, what does it mean? You're so far left, you're right. Like, what are they even it's, talking about? It's it's just a way to just make again, just make everything, just make it seem like the center is the only way. I mean. Yeah, they just like to use the whole like anti-establishment narrative to basically conflate the right with the left and be like, look, you guys are anti-establishment too. That means that you're also Nazis. So should we move on to the SCOTUS nomination? Go for it. People's greatest fears have sort of materialized over the last few days having to do with the Supreme Court nomination because it's one of the things that even Democrats have been long afraid of um, and have sort of tried to fearmonger people into voting for the Democrat by saying, well, at the very least, you don't want a new Republican president to nominate a Supreme Court justice because they could overturn Roe versus Wade if they get enough of a majority. And we're starting to see that reality materialize. I think it's definitely possible that Roe versus Wade could be overturned. I'm not like a doubter of that possibility that things could really revert in that direction and become more conservative very quickly. People are really freaking out right now. I'm seeing more the reactions from people than I am what the actual motions would have to be for Roe v. Wade to be overturned to the Supreme Court. It does seem like it's, it is a cause for alarm, obviously. He already got a chance to nominate one Supreme Court justice, and now here's another. And he might even get a chance to do another, even, by the time he gets out of office. If he gets a chance to do another one, then yeah, then things could get really bad way quicker. So... So as far as how it would actually happen to overturn Roe, someone wrote a good Vox article about um, you know, how this would be done, quoting Vox now. The Supreme Court can overturn its own precedents. Just this term, it threw out three decades-old rulings. So there's nothing stopping Roe and Casey from joining them. It's worth asking, in addition, what overturning Roe would look like, and there are two broad ways it could happen. The first is the overturn without overturning approach. And the second is a full-on reversal. Um, you know, obviously, full-on reversal, we know what that would be. The first is the overturn without overturning. So they're saying just a systematic destruction of Roe um, without a full, you know, federal ban, which would obviously uh, enrage a lot of people. So one path that this could take, um, according to Mark Joseph Stern at Slate, um, he says, quote, a conservative state will pass a draconian anti-abortion restriction. One that shutters all abortion clinics, perhaps, or outlaws abortion after a fetal heartbeat is detected. With Kavanaugh providing the decisive fifth vote, the court will rule that the state law does not pose an undue burden to abortion access, and women who truly want an abortion can go to another state. So the majority may not admit what it's doing, but in practice, it will be overturning Roe. It's pretty disgusting what's going on. I mean, the Democrats have been using this to intellectually bribe and manipulate voters for the last i mean as far as i can remember honestly ever since 2000 as i was like starting to really pay Mm -hmm. attention to politics it always seemed like they would always use that roe v wade could be overturned if we vote republican well here we are and i think it's important to mention that abortion pretty much is almost overturned in many states already across the country yeah it's like a jim crow style thing where they make it virtually impossible for people to get abortions in certain states even if it's technically legal in certain states, they make it virtually impossible to get one. Yeah, I mean, in terms of abortion restrictions that already exist in the country, the Good Major Institute, I think that's the way you pronounce it, a, re- a reproductive rights research group, notes that 43 states prohibit abortions after a certain point in pregnancy already. 
um, ranging from 20 to 24 weeks. According to the organization, 401 state-level abortion restrictions were enacted just in the last six years, which is very disturbing. So these, you know, the evangelicals who have been stacking these uh, circuit courts and basically legislatures have really been moving. 35 states require that a woman receive counseling before an abortion is performed. That's already traumatizing. While 14 require a woman to receive an ultrasound before being given an abortion. Just a really disgusting attempt to humanize fetal tissue and dissuade women from having agency over their own bodies. Um, Recently, Mississippi approved a 15-week abortion ban. Kentucky just applied an abortion ban. Um, after 11 weeks, Ohio and South Carolina are weighing total prohibitions. Iowa banned abortions after fetal heartbeats, which usually occur at around six weeks of pregnancy. And obviously there are many, many more restrictions that make it virtually impossible to have abortions in so many states. And this is on top of just every abortion clinic being littered with like crazy religious extremists who harass women going in there. This is on top of the grace period. This is on top of just the constant attacks had that have gone on since Roe v. Wade. I think that what this comes down to is, do you want women to die or do you want them to live? Because it's not an issue of, do you want women to have abortions or not? Abortions are never going to stop. So the question is, do you want women to safely have abortions or do you want them to die trying to have abortions? Mm -hmm. And apparently they want them to die. These Christian evangelicals, I mean... This is what the Republicans managed to do is they joined forces with the Christian evangelicals in the 70s and made abortion one of the big swing vote issues to to Christians everywhere. It's part of the reason why a a right-wing Christian conservative evangelical can never truly care about Arabs being bombed in the Middle East because they think every aborted fetus is a, it's like a mass genocide happening across the country of babies. So it just like overrides anything for them. I mean, it's just like a weird compartmentalized hysterical place to pour all of their concern into and act like it's like the ultimate evil. Yeah. So it almost makes sense how people like Alex Jones and other people can really easily tap into this idea that everybody who's running things is a Satanist, you know, or they're satanic because they're murdering children. Genocide of Yeah, so it's not much of a leap then to think that they must all be molesting children too. It just really shows you how the pathways in these people's brains really operate, and it's kind of disturbing to yeah. say the least. Justice Kennedy was 81 years old, or he is 81 years old. He was appointed by Ronald Reagan in 1988. You know, people are calling him a moderate. They're, they're really stressing the fact that he was a crucial decision to protect everything from a affirmative action to, I guess, gay marriage. But an analysis by 538 of his voting record during during his three decades in court shows that he voted pretty much with the court's right wing in the majority of all cases, including controversial, closely decided cases throughout his career. Um, legal experts say that he occupied the Id- ideological middle ground on relatively few issues. Kennedy was in the middle a lot. But on many topics, he was as far to the right as his conservative colleagues. So according to this guy, Steve Vladek, a law professor at the University of Texas, he says, quote, the reality is that in a lot of cases, we may not see that much of a difference between Kennedy and his successor. Um, In close decisions, Kennedy sided with conservatives over 70 percent of the time. Compare that to the a little bit more fringy right wing justices, Roberts, Alito, Scalia and Thomas 
they cast conservative votes in 80% of the cases with a five justice majority. So compare over 70% to 80%. It's like, okay, you're kind of splitting hairs here about how moderate he really was. But I guess like when you're when you're talking about cases, like I mentioned before, I mean, his vote really did matter. He wasn't trying to overturn Roe v. Wade. Kennedy was the fifth vote to preserve Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. You know, he was also the fifth vote to save affirmative action. But those are basically like the only saving graces because then you get into what he actually helped shape a broad view of freedom of speech that he used to justify unlimited corporate campaign spending. He also was extremely vehemently anti-worker. He struck down regulations on commercial speech. Here's the real, real interesting part about this whole story that is not being really like taken with the lead by a lot of these corporate media outlets. You know, as much as they were going to now blame all leftists and Bernie Sanders supporters and Susan Sarandon for basically having Trump stack the Supreme Court. When you look at the facts, it really seems like they have been friends for a long time, that the only reason Kennedy decided to resign now is because he was essentially promised by Trump that he was going to handpick his next nominee, a really close ally to Kennedy, to basically just continue his, his exact agenda. People don't remember that Trump actually did promise, just like he said, I'm going to bomb terrorists and their families. He wanted to torture them. Waterboarding wasn't enough. He also said multiple times and basically promised his conservative evangelical base that he was going to overturn Roe v. Wade. Whenever he was asked, he said, yeah, he said, I absolutely think it should be overturned and we should just leave it up to the states. Yep. So people like Dave Rubin like to look at it and they were like, oh, Trump's pro-abortion or like Trump's pro-gay rights. It's like, it doesn't fucking matter what Trump believed 20 years ago. Like he literally on the campaign trail looked us dead in the eye Mm -hmm. and said, this is what he's going to do. So reading from the New York Times right now, um, the White House waged a quiet campaign to ensure Trump had a second opportunity in his first 18 months to fulfill one of the most important campaign promises to his conservative followers, that he would change the complexion and direction of the Supreme Court. So, of course, we know that when he took office last year that there was already a vacancy because Mitch McConnell, his biggest feat, and he'll brag about this now, that he blocked Obama's Supreme Court justice nominee. Even though Obama was nominating someone extremely generic middle of the road that he thought wouldn't be like filibustered and blocked by the Republicans, it still was. That was their claim to fame, was just like blocking everything Obama did. Um, And because Democrats are so weak and spineless, they just didn't do shit about it. So now here we are with Donald J. Trump. See, everything that happens, the NDAA, um, the indefinite detention, the Patriot Act, these endless war AUMF authorizations, every time these things happen... And we were like really, really up in arms about them. It's not necessarily that we think like Obama would indefinitely detain masses of Americans or anything. It's that we think that someone like a Donald Trump would get into office and have this apparatus built for him already that you could essentially just steamroll something like we're seeing happen right in front of our eyes. But people don't actually understand that. So we've let all of this happen. And now we're the frogs in the pot of boiling water where people are looking around saying, how the fuck did this happen? And we already know that the Democrats are going to lay down and vote for this dude. Of course, you are. Oh, my God. The Democrats are going to vote him in, and then they're going to turn around and blame Susan Sarandon for this happening. Trump already had a Supreme Court vacancy to fill because Scalia died in 2016. So he clearly wanted that second vacancy, though, because the second vacancy would really promise that Roe v. Wade and all of these other God knows what else is down the line um, for what these people want to do. So... 
he basically used the first opening to help create the second one. So according to the New York Times, he picked Gorsuch, who had served as a law clerk to Justice Kennedy, to fill Scalia's seat. So when Gorsuch took the judicial oath, Justice Kennedy administered it. See, he's, always, he's been like plotting this for a little bit, dude. After Gorsuch's nomination was announced, um, a White House official singled out two candidates for the next Supreme Court vacancy. Judge Brett Kavanaugh of the U.S. Court of Appeals and Judge Raymond Kethledge um, in the Sixth Circuit. So the two judges had something in common. They had both clerked for Justice Kennedy. Wow. The younger Kennedy. Here's, here's another amazing thing. So, Where is this? So Where are you reading this I'm from? reading this from the New York Times. So, okay. But beyond just the fact that these people are like close and were Kennedy clerks, here's the real clincher. Trump's very good friends with Kennedy's son. Not only good friends with him, but he basically was one of his top money bundlers at Deutsche Bank. So the younger Kennedy, the younger Mr. Kennedy, Kennedy's son, spent more than a decade at Deutsche Bank, eventually rising to become the bank's global head of real estate capital markets. He worked closely with Donald Trump when he was a real estate developer. During Mr. Kennedy's tenure, Deutsche Bank became Mr. Trump's most important lender, dispensing over a billion dollars in loans to him for the renovation and construction of skyscrapers in New York and Chicago at a time when other mainstream banks were very wary of doing business with him because of his troubled business history. So this is just mind blowing to me. Like this is this the lead was buried in the New York Times. That little tidbit of information was buried like 20 paragraphs down. That, by the way, Kennedy's son was like a top money bundler for Trump's real estate business. Wow. They would make that the lead of like if it was a Russia thing, obviously. Oh, my God. Of course. That's nuts. I mean, look, the Supreme Court is monstrous. It's an undemocratic dictatorial board that makes no fucking sense. You honestly can compare it to like kings and queens. Obviously, the poor and working class have always been rejected by the Supreme Court because first and foremost, this is a body that serves to protect the status quo and the ruling oligarchy. In recent history, SCOTUS cited on behalf of Hoffman Plastic Compounds in 2002 in the case where the company refused to give back pay to an undocumented worker after he was illegally fired for union organizing activities. In more ancient history, when socialism was wildly popular in America before the Cold War, before McCarthyism, and this disinformation campaign against leftists, there was a massive party presence. In the early 20th century, Socialist Party leader Eugene Debs went to jail for six months because he participated in a railway strike in 1894. So this is surreal, considering how long ago this was written. But after he got out of jail, he asked, quote, And how does it happen? And why does it happen that corporations are never restrained? Are they absolutely law-abiding? Are they always right? Do they never transgress the law? Or is it because the federal judges are their creatures? If all the common people united and asked for the appointment of a federal judge, their voice would not be heeded any more than if it were the chirp of a cricket. Money talks. Yes, money talks. And I have no hesitancy in declaring that money has even invaded, or the influence that power conferred by money has invaded, the Supreme Court. There's something very wrong in this country. The judicial nets are so adjusted to catch the minnows and let the whales slip through. And the federal judge is as far removed from the common people as if he inhabited another planet. Wow. Uh, very well said. Unbelievable. Um, 
Years later in 1918, Debs was charged and convicted under the 1917 Espionage Act for making an anti-war speech protesting the U.S. getting involved in World War I. Um, his 10-year sentence, 10 years in prison for making an anti-war speech, anti-war agitation. I mean, consider like being written up in the DNI report saying that I'm fomenting radical discontent. This guy was put in prison for that. Um, 10-year sentence upheld, upheld by the Supreme Court. So I'm going to quote an excellent article by socialistworker.org now that I'll link on the timeline about the court's servitude to the war machine. During the First World War, when laws were passed criminalizing criticism of the war, the court gave its resounding approval. Um, even liberal justices joined in the unanimous decision to uphold the imprisonment of dissenters. Thus, when Debs used his right to free speech to oppose the war in a public oration in 1918, the court unanimously upheld the verdict against him, sending him to prison. So this is what he said about the judicial system during that famous anti-war speech in Ohio. He says, who appoints our federal judges? The people? In all the history of this country, the working class has never named a federal judge. There are 121 of these judges, and every solitary one holds his position, his tenure, through the influence and power of the corporate capital. The corporations and trusts dictate their appointments. And when they go to the bench, they go not to serve the people, but to serve the interests that place them and keep them where they are. Why, the other day, by a vote of five to four, they declared that child labor law unconstitutional. By a majority of one, the Supreme Court, a body of corporation lawyers, I love that, corporation lawyers, with just one exception, wiped that law from the statute books. And this in our so-called democracy, so that we may continue to grind the flesh and blood and bones of puny little children into profits for the junkers of Wall Street. And this in a country that boasts of fighting to make the world safe for democracy. Boom! Mic drop, dude. Holy mother. Eugene Debs is just a goddamn prophet. I mean, amazingly astute, prophetic individual who was decades, if not centuries, ahead of his time, considering today's regression in America. Um, you know, Debs is also who said that famous quote, I'd rather vote for something I want and not get it than vote for something I don't want and get it. Couldn't agree more. We all like to think of the Supreme Court as like this ultimate arbitrator in like ethics, human rights, morality. Absolutely not. Instead, if you really look at the history of the Supreme Court, I mean, aside from the fact that they're like a dictatorship with lifetime appointments, yeah. which is super fucking weird and undemocratic, they really have been a barrier to progress. They really have sided with some of the worst decisions when it comes to everything from segregation to workers' rights. And we'll get into that in a second, but it's just funny that... It's only like after the mainstream has already completely like accepted something like gay marriage that the Supreme Court will safely take this on. And if you look at all these circuit courts that that Trump is also stacking with lifetime appointments, that's the majority of decisions that are made. I mean, the Supreme Court only takes on, I think, like two percent of all cases. So we hyper focus on the Supreme Court. But really, I mean, I, I barely see any news about all these judges he's stacking in lifetime appointments all across these circuit courts. A lot of the decisions end at the circuit court. Yeah. There's no such thing as term limits and there's no such thing as recall votes. The only way a justice can be removed, and now I'm reading from the Chicago Tribune, the only way a justice can be removed is to be impeached or convicted by Congress. And the last time this country experienced a major progressive movement over a century ago... 
that's when the 17th Amendment was ratified, which allowed the people to even vote directly for their senators. Before that, people couldn't even vote for their senators. Isn't that amazing? Wow. Um, and, you know, all these people who are like, you know, everyone from David Cross to Tom Perez, who's talking about this blue wave in 2018. If you actually look at the math, it is going to be virtually impossible for Democrats to take over the Senate in 2018. Mm-hmm. It is so hardcore stacked with right wing right now. Um, Democrats only have 24 seats up for election and, and Republicans only have nine seats at risk. So that just shows you where we're going toward when it comes to all, like you said, Trump could have an opportunity to actually appoint two more justices. Mm-hmm. Ginsburg. She's 85 years old. Yep. Um, just reading about her. And, and people they, already were talking about her retiring and yeah. her Obama. Yeah, they were asking her to retire under Obama. It'd be a really dark times. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be. Yeah. I mean, honestly, the only um, saving graces in the court, if that happens, is Sotomayor and Kagan. And they're like, I mean, you really can barely call them left wing, but at least they would be like yeah. the only two dissenting sure. voices. But like, what does it matter? They're just going to be overridden with everything. No, they're absolutely right. Yeah. Mitch McConnell's whole reason for not allowing Obama to nominate a second justice was that it was during an election year. Uh-huh. Like, what the fuck does that even mean? I just can't even believe that that happened. You know, here the Democrats basically manipulate us every election cycle, and they're like, well, if you don't vote for us, like, we're going to let the Republicans nominate a Supreme Court justice. It's like, you fucking let them anyway. You already let them do it, even when Obama was in office. You guys should have done sit-ins. Like, look, shit is seriously at stake. Lives are at stake now. Like you guys said, Roe v. Wade might be overturned. So where is, let's see the resistance. Let's see how much they really care about resisting. I mean, it's really in their hands at this point. And like we said, we, I mean, it's going to be the Democrats who are actually going to let this happen. I have a Democracy Now! um, article in front of me, and I'm going to read just a little bit about who this guy is. Judge Brett Kavanaugh, who President Trump nominated. He served as a senior aide under President George W. Bush. In the White House Counsel's Office, his wife was Bush's personal secretary. So he was basically part of the same White House Counsel that tried to get them off for torture, tried to get them off for mass NSA surveillance. So he was basically the neocon fascist police state's guard dog. Yeah, pretty fucked up, dude. Yeah, he like I it's said, it's like Alberto Gonzalez uh, was probably he probably worked closely with Alberto Gonzalez and John Ashcroft. Of course, but, I mean know. he was in the Bush. This yeah. is a Bush administration official. Yeah. This guy was also a Federalist Society member. Um, Now, the Federalist Society was kind of an incubator to repeal Obamacare. It was also responsible for the last three Republican-appointed Supreme Court justices, Roberts, Alito, and Gorsuch. They all came from this Federalist Society to have been fostering this, like, list. Weird. For a long time of suitable right-wing judges to consider for the Supreme Court. So if Kavanaugh is confirmed, what would that mean? It would mean that we would create this block of five right-wing justices, making it the most conservative court since the 1930s. Holy shit. So this could be the most major rollback of civil rights, environmental regulations, gun control measures, voting rights, and reproductive rights, including, like we said, Roe v. Wade. So just to give you an insight on how fucked up and demented this dude is, Kavanaugh last year ruled against an undocumented teenager who sought to have an abortion while in detention. He said allowing the the abortion would make the government, quote, complicit in something that's morally objectionable. He's been on the D.C. circuit 
um, where he was a consistent antagonist of environmental regulations. Okay, so he also said that he would strike down net neutrality, but he didn't stop there. He actually said that net neutrality is a violation of the First Amendment. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. He said that if you regulate internet services providers' ability to not slow down certain content, that's regulating their free speech. That's a violation of the First Amendment. Wow. He's already made very clear what he thinks about Roe v. Wade. He said it was a freewheeling decision. He wrote an opinion just last year that used a very aggressive posturing and said that the Trump administration could literally imprison women to delay their ability to have an abortion. So watch the Democracy Now! interview with this guy. Um, He talks all about, there's like a three-part interview with several people just explaining who this guy is, more in depth about what could happen here. But I mean, absolutely. I mean, here we are where Ireland just overturns this medieval practice of banning abortions, you know, nationwide. And it was this huge Mm -hmm. movement and everyone's really happy. I was like, wow, Ireland's one of the last industrialized countries that that had banned abortion. And now here we are, the U.S. empire. Wow. How exceptional are we that we could actually see abortions be banned on a federal level here in 2018? Um, We're going backwards decades, just like every other issue in America. 70% of people in this country support Roe v. Wade. 70% of people already support this. But these people don't care about that. They don't care that the overwhelming majority of people in the U.S. support legalization of marijuana. They don't care that the overwhelming majority support net neutrality or universal health care. They don't fucking care, dude. This is all about just like pleasing like billionaire donors and evangelical extremists. Yeah. It's weird because I feel like this is really, it. it's like they're clashing up against now this thing that evangelicals have always wanted, but the even like the mainstream like right-wing GOP, I feel like most of them, if they really were talking, you know, asked about it in private, they would say it's probably not a good idea to overturn it. But it is, so it is strange to me, like, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe like they have become more, virulent on this issue but i feel like yeah the overwhelming majority of people actually don't support it i mean as you just said in that poll so it does seem like it'd just be like the evangelical wet dream and not really even something that would comply with even just like a mainstream christian like they you know i don't even know if it would be interesting to take a poll of christians and how many of them support roe v wade Mm -hmm. just like all types of denominations um yeah. Yeah, that's why Eugene Debs wanted the abolition of the Supreme Court. He said they were just basically like servants for the capitalist class because when you look at their worst decisions, they are really bad. Like it is actually surreal now that I think about it that the Supreme Court has this much power. This whole judicial branch idea when it's essentially just like a dictatorship that's appointed by corporate shills. Oh, re- go through some of these examples now because oh, you said yeah. you were going to mention them and I'm, now I'm really curious. So let's go back to 1896 really quickly when the Supreme Court upheld the legality of racial segregation. Plessy versus Ferguson. Dred Scott versus Sanford in, ni- in 1857 upheld slavery in the free states. And then look no further to 1944. Korematsu versus the United States when they upheld the internment of 120,000 Japanese U.S. citizens. That was the Supreme Court. Nuts. 
That was the Supreme Court. And of course, the third case is very recent. Hawaii v. Trump upholding the president's Muslim ban. Mm -hmm. Um, Chief Justice John Roberts and Anthony Kennedy's concurring opinion go out of their way to reject the suggestion that religious animus motivated the ban. I mean, can you imagine actually saying, you know what, it actually isn't motivated by religion? Crazy. Yeah, that's what they argued. That's just like the craziest ones, you know? There's several just in the last like couple of years that have been extremely destructive right wing, like just emblematic of how right wing and crazy and how much of a barrier this court really is to progress. And um, I'm just going to read a couple of them. I mean, oh my God, I forgot about Bush v. Gore. I mean, the oh Supreme God, Court yeah. decided the presidential election in 2000. It's still so surreal to think about. I that can't even happened. believe that happened. I know. It's so weird. I'll never forget that. And Gore was just standing there like a babooze. Thinking and they're like hitting the gavel. I'm, I mean, I'm talking about like when the Supreme Court like oh, decided. Yeah. yeah. God damn. Yeah. It's actually Sandra Day O'Connor apparently regretted the decision. Well, fucking too late, dude. Um, so here's another one that no one really knows about that really shows you what the court really represents. If, if the corporations are people thing didn't really lay it all out, then in 2008, Exxon Shipping Co. v. Baker should have. And I'm reading from Salon right now. It's called Five of the Most Destructive Right-Wing Supreme Court Decisions in American History. Number two, Exxon Shipping Co. v. Baker. It says... After the Exxon Valdez oil spill, which was, of course, one of the single biggest environmental disasters, following years of court battles, Exxon was finally held responsible for its grossly negligent captain, hit with a $5 billion fee in damages, which, I mean, obviously that's really not much for these corporations anyway, but guess what? Roberts Supreme Court ruled that Exxon couldn't be subject to punitive damages. So they dropped down the total damages to 500 million. Just a little slap on the wrist. Jesus Christ. So not only did that giant oil company evade billions of dollars in damages, the Supreme Court's ruling basically said that you could not do that again. And they increased the value of their stock, actually. It says by $23 billion in two days. Hmm. Wonderful. Then there's another really interesting one that barely anyone talks about too, which is Shelby County versus Holder in 2013, where the Robert Supreme Court ruled to reverse a major part of the Voting Rights Act. Remember that? I mean, this is something that MLK, all the civil rights movement, like with blood, sweat, and tears. No, go into some more detail about that. I they don't know legally about that. granted a series of illegal voter suppression actions. The decision couldn't be any more anti-democratic as it led to Texas enforcing voter ID and ensuring that the state's redistricting maps would no longer need federal approval. Um, just stripping down, like eventually probably trying to overturn the entire thing, you know, just stripping down these basic fundamental measures that really gut the entire legislation. Um, this is this is really interesting too. Connick v. Thompson in 2011. We already know that like Clarence Thomas is like connected to Monsanto and all of that shit. The Koch brothers have their hands all over these Supreme Court justices too. In the case of Connick v. Thompson, John Thompson, an innocent man who languished in prison for nearly 18 years, was given no justice after Clarence Thomas argued that the prosecutor's office could not be held accountable for willful rights violations. So it basically makes it harder for innocent people to prove their innocence from to okay. prevent being sent to prison. So I, it's a, kind of a complicated one. Um, but then, yeah, I mean, the, the, the most obvious one is the corporations are people. So Citizens United in 2010, where Robert's conservative court put the final nail in the coffin when he ruled that corporate political spending is a form of free speech. So 
I mean, this is, we know what that did. It, it created this, this super PAC. You can just funnel unlimited funds and it's just anonymous. And that's why now you see elections are just billions of dollars. I mean, no other country does this. Not only does no other country have just like two parties that are just very right wing um, and, and have blocked and prevented the ability for anyone else who's like remotely left of center to have any sort of political power representation in the country. But no other country really has like billion dollar, like extravagant elections like this. They're yeah. like co- bizarre extravaganzas that are like Hollywood productions. Mm-hmm. And we're just going to keep seeing that go up and up. I mean, I, I know I think during the 2008 election, it was the first like billion dollar mark. And I mean, Trump versus Hillary just took that shit way over the edge. And oh, I don't yeah. even know how much money was was wasted on the last election, but it's really cringeworthy to think about, man. Yeah, it's horrific. I can't wait for the 2020 election. I can't wait. I can't wait. I just love, I love that they actually upheld the Muslim ban. It's just like, what? This is before this motherfucker left the Supreme Court. You cannot depend on this body for anything. They're just going to set us back so, so long. But I listened to a good segment on Loud and Clear Radio with some socialists talking about just elaborating more about how the Supreme Court has constantly been a barrier and has never really helped progressivism and how like really the only way to shift the Supreme Court, because you see a lot of justices that were like appointed by, you know, like, for example, Reagan, the mm-hmm. Kennedy um, was appointed by Reagan. So even though he was Scalia appointed by like a, a really crazy right winger, he still was kind of reflected the mainstream opinions at, over yeah. time. Like, yeah. so it's really just it starts with mass civil disobedience and the zeitgeist of where society is at. And that's the only thing that can push policy. That's the only thing that's going to push the Supreme Court. I mean, that's the only thing you can really hope for. Well, like but gay I, marriage. I mean, yeah, that was like came so late. You know, by the time society had accepted it. Yeah, exactly. One of their own, their only good decisions. Recently. So it's just it's it's just amazing that this is where we're at. And you know, Trump could feasibly stack the court with two more judges. And I mean, I, I it's just more of the reason why the entire system needs to be completely upended and abolished because, you know. If, if the electoral college wasn't bad enough, if the gerrymandering and just this two-party dictatorship wasn't bad enough, and the fact that we have no chance of even like eking left whatsoever for the 2018 because the Senate's so stacked, on top of that, like this court that's just like a dictatorship that's going to be stacked with f- potentially like five crazy evangelical-ish judges, I mean, there is no further hope in investing in that system. There absolutely is not. And all these circuit court judges across the country, I mean, it's over. Game over, dude. Game over. Yeah. I mean, it's already game over is the thing. And people won't really fully realize it until it's probably too late. I mean, it's like I was saying in the last podcast, we're really, I feel like we're really in for a really dark, wild ride. And we have not seen the worst of what the Trump presidency is going to bring. Um, it's going to be dark times in the U.S., I just don't understand why, like, why they can't use these financial ties with Kennedy's son, you know, to prevent this or try to make some sort of big deal out of it. You mean the Democrats, like, trying to stop it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, probably because they all do the same shit. Right. I mean, I don't know. It's just like, why didn't they go after Bush for torture? It's because they all, like, secretly approved it all mm-hmm. and pretended like they were morally opposed to it later. So who knows what's really going on, you know? 
Some people in the oh, resistance. Oh, I already saw like MSNBC people being like, like um, the new guy is like good. Oh my gosh! Like yeah. arguments Damn. for like a a liberal case for fuck the next successor. Well, we're screwed. Yeah, we really are screwed. I'm gonna do a whole Empire Files episode once we get paid, which I hope happens soon, about the Supreme Court and really just about all of this stuff because people don't know the history. People don't know just how crazy it is that this body exists. And as kind of this ultimate legislator I know. over all of our policies. Yeah, it would be good to go through the bizarre. history of it. Yeah. I mean, just the last thing that I really wanted to just mention is a quick, quick, quick Palestine update. More and more people are being banned from entering Israel. Of course, you have to fly into Tel Aviv. You can't, there is no like airport in the West Bank. So, you know, apartheid. So someone who actually walked like I don't know, hundreds of miles or something to try to get to Palestine. It says 5,000 kilometers over oh, wow. 11 months. Wow. On, on foot, foot from Sweden. Yeah, to, to like be in solidarity. They were banned Swedish activists. And, and on top of that, another woman who was vocal about BDS, boycott, divestment, sanctions before online was banned. I mean, that, that's really crazy to fly to Israel and then just be blocked from entering the country. Pretty shocking. For posting something online. Yeah. Uh, where was she a citizen from? I, I think she was American. But again, I mean, I saw something like this happen when I was getting into, when I flew into Tel Aviv with Mike, someone in the plane that had nothing to do with any political group or anything. She just simply had an Arab language book in her bag. Just American as apple pie, girl from Florida, probably even, didn't even know that that was like offensive to Israelis. And she was banned too. Couldn't get into the country because they said she was an Arab sympathizer. Holy shit. Yeah. And she I remember was, that. Yeah. And she was just like, wait, I thought like they spoke Arabic here. Like I just wanted to learn the language. Oh my God. So crazy. That's how paranoid they are. That's how much they would rather just like block anyone from exposing them. Mm-hmm. That's why they're doing the five-year jail sentence from anyone who just films war crimes on camera. Well, here's another really interesting thing. And this, this is going along with how there's this bizarre allegiance, I'm sorry, alliance with neo-Nazis and just the Israeli ethnostate. Um, where you see white supremacists increasingly supporting Israel, even though they're anti-Semitic. Because again, this has nothing to do with Judaism. The, the notion of Israel itself is anti-Semitic. Think about it. The fact that you're claiming that this represents all Jews, like a state exclusively, like an ethno state uh-huh. that's like discriminating in mass and like colonizing indigenous people. And like to say that that represents all Jews, like that's anti-Semitic. So anyway... According to the Electronic Intifada, from really great research, um, is that the Israeli government's actually funding neo-Nazis in Ukraine. Yeah, not just funding them, but actually their new modern weaponry that the IDF uses has appeared in propaganda videos. It says on Electronic Intifada... um, that Azov Battalion's online propaganda shows Israeli-licensed Tavor rifles in the fascist group's hands, while Israeli human rights activists have protested arms sales to Ukraine on the basis that weapons might end up with anti-Semitic militias. Um, and it says that the, they tried to get official statements from the IDF after obtaining a letter revealing their support, but they fully declined to comment for security reasons. Um, and basically, yeah, I mean, this shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone, but it is, you know to put it mildly ironic that they're using these Israeli rifles in their own propaganda videos. 
Um, yeah. Uh, so it actually goes on to say the rifles are produced under license from Israel Weapons Industries and as such would have been authorized by the Israeli government. IWI markets that Tavor as the primary weapon of the Israeli Special Forces. It has been used in recent massacres of unarmed Palestinians taking part in the Great March of Return. The Ukrainian state-owned arms company that produces the rifles under license has a page about the Tavor on its website, the Israel Weapons Industries log. Um, so yeah, it's pretty pretty bizarre stuff that they're using Israeli rifles and Israel's trying to secretly sell them weapons directly. Um, some weird games being played. Yeah, for how much Israel likes to paint itself as the victim and it needs to commit all of these mass atrocities because they're constantly under the threat of like anti-Semitic terrorism and stuff. It's just quite perplexing that they are dead ass silent on the actual literal rise of Nazism. Where were they on Charlottesville? Where were they? Where are they on Ukraine? Oh, yeah. Not only are they silent, they're arming the Nazis. Yeah, that's not, they just want to kill Arabs. <laughs> they just want to murder the rest of the Arabs in their state and they'll be good. But why don't they care about, they don't care about actual no, Nazis? of course they don't. Why would they? And instead they call BDS activists Nazis and shit. Yeah. It's just like absolutely mind bending the way that they've been able to manipulate the narrative and just do all this. And it's not just them. I mean, there's Nazis visiting like the white house and shit too. There's like, there was some Ukrainian Nazi sympathizer guy that was invited to speak at the Capitol. Yeah. Um, and I don't know the details, but I think Max reported on that. Well, Max is the only one who confronted him. It's like no one in DC who's quote unquote part of the resistance that hates Trump and is calling the next Hitler, they don't want to confront the fact that the White House is embracing actual neo-Nazis? No, because it's Russian propaganda, Abby. I mean, they manage to convince everyone that it's a non-issue because it's Russian interference. And it's not a big enough deal. If, I, if the entire army was a neo-Nazi, then it might be something that they talk about. But since it's just a battalion that's part of the national, officially part of the National Guard now of Ukraine, it's just not a big enough deal. But I mean, it's reflected in like bodies of like elected bodies and oh, stuff all across Europe. But it's not blatant enough, you know, mm -hmm. if it was more blatant. I mean, just like Vice was able to whitewash it while literally standing in front of one of their like vehicles that had the SS mm -hmm. Azov battalion logo on it. They just, you know, if they were able to get by to all these like hipsters everywhere, these liberal hipsters, then I just, yeah, I just don't, I think that it is. Obviously, a horrible thing that we're doing it, but I don't think it's 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 not going to be a big enough deal for anybody to care. That's insane. I know it is, insane. especially all these hardcore yeah. rabid Zionists, yeah, who think that like well, it's just as insane as us working with Al Nusra in Syria. Yeah, that did that get very much traction? Yeah. So same thing. I mean, it's like wait, all of a sudden we're working with an Al Qaeda affiliated group. Like why? <laughs> like how did that happen all of a sudden? Right. There was never any serious media discussion about that either. I mean, probably actually more so than the neo-Nazis in Ukraine. So yeah, it's, it's just like, same old shit. Yeah, it's like ISIS is barbaric and we should kill them all, but all of a sudden Al-Nusra is good and we should well, work yeah. with them. Yeah. Weird. Mm-hmm. Huh. Well, the Supreme Court stuff is just bonkers. Uh, I really cannot believe that we are here so soon. You know, I always kind of thought it was a, a hyperbolic threat when the Democrats would, would say that. Um, and, and guess what? It wasn't, but it really is their fault. 
it's everyone's fault that has been complicit in the system and allowing us to get to where we are. It's time to clean house. Time to clean house and commit mass civil disobedience and get out in the streets because begging and pleading the Democratic Party to actually block this shit is never going to pan out. And and shaming people for voting for third party um, is not the right strategy. I 100% agree. And if you want to vote based on who, you know, the Supreme Court pick, that's your choice and i'm not gonna like shame you for that if you're in a swing state and want to vote for whoever the democratic nominee is like i would never shame you for that so consider not shaming people who vote for third party and just vote for their heart too um so yeah thanks for listening everybody and uh we'll catch you on the next episode yeah and if you have anything to add to prepare for the empire files episode on the supreme court holla put it on the timeline because I really want to do more research on this. And then one really quick thing that I wanted to close out with is that I'm collaborating with the Gaza journalists. I think I already said this on the last podcast, right? And I'm collaborating with those Gaza journalists to create a documentary about the Great March of Return. So that should be out by the end of this month. So watch out for that. Really looking forward to that. Yeah, it's going to be really, really, really great. So thank you so much, everyone, for your feedback, for your comments, for sharing our work. As we mentioned on the last episode, we kind of lost a lot of views or listens on our SoundCloud. So give us some love, share it around and, and help us out. And thank you so much to all the donors. You guys rock. Peace. Thanks for listening.